0: I'll let the travel website British Heritage sum up the importance of today's episode. They write that, in one battle, William the Conqueror led the Normans in sweeping away Britain rule. Over the next 88 years, four Norman kings bullied and bossed the country, and their rule would dramatically alter England's social, political, and physical landscape. They left in their wake brash castles, bold cathedrals, and a firmly entrenched class system. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history, This is the fourth of five episodes regarding the life of William the Conqueror, episode number four, 1066, and the Battle of Hastings. Our prior three episodes looked at the backstories that led Harold Godwinson, Harold Hardrada, and William the Conqueror to the shores of England in 1066. In this episode, we finally focus on the clash of civilizations that set in motion the next era of world history. But we still have some backstory to fill in before we get to the Battle of Stamford Bridge, and then to Hastings itself. Tostig was the brother of Harold Godwinson the man who will be officially named heir to King Edward the Confessor. In 1065, Harold was a guest who couldn't leave in Williams, Normandy, and while the cats away, the mice tend to play. August of 1065 began an unraveling that directly contributed to the arrivals of both of Harold's enemies to the shores of England. An incursion occurred in the north with Caradoc, a holdover from Canute's era, assaulting one of Harold's northern fortresses. The attack was brazen, as Caradoc made no attempt to hide his theft of the Earl's treasury and military equipment. Now, keep in mind Harold Godwinson's reputation at this point. He was a victorious general who had previously brought Wales to heel. He was also the largest landowner and due to his connection to the king, was perceived by all to be the most powerful man in England. So how can one explain this random Viking-styled raid by one leader against another within a civilized nation? Was Caradoc just stupid? Did his primitive Viking heritage suddenly bubble to the surface and he was unable to help himself? Was there some past slight that he was forced to scratch? Had Harold's time as prisoner in Normandy made his enemies forget the power that he wielded? Or was he a pawn in a wider conspiracy led by Edward, who sought to replace Harold with his younger brother Tostig? Noted British historian Frank MacLynn, our chief resource on the topic, suggests that it would scarcely be surprising if the king, reduced to a figurehead by Godwin, and then further truncated in power by his eldest living son, should have resented and even hated the powerful and charismatic herald. I know firsthand that it can be tough to be the younger sibling, particularly when the elder is quite successful. I still vividly remember explaining to my parents that my grades were the equivalent of my sisters but for the fact that my high school had eliminated the GPA enhancing honors point. After my parents declared that that was a mere excuse, I dug up two old report cards to literally show them that the final grades were the same, despite a significant difference in GPA. Likely because they suspected that I was telling the truth but still wanted me to try harder, they refused to look at the evidence. On the surface, Harold Godwinson looked to be perfect. Tall, handsome, successful in the manly arts of war, chief advisor to the king, Harold was everything that the medieval world told a man to be. But no one is perfect. Dig deep enough and one finds out that Harold was a womanizer who paid significant sums of his family's money in order to artificially build up his reputation. King Edward relied upon the man, but keep in mind that this is the son of Godwin, the man whom Edward blamed for the violent death of his brother, a man whom he was willing to risk civil war so that he could have the honor of picking out Harold's prison cell. Tostig, the little brother in the shadows, was a man seeking to uphold his family's lofty reputation, a man who felt that he had been overlooked, a man who recognized that his elder brother wasn't quite as squeaky clean as everyone proclaimed. After intense lobbying, Tostig was finally given his chance in 1055, as he was named the Earl of Northumbria. Of course, the only reason that Tostig was afforded the opportunity was because Harold had worked behind the scenes to decimate the reputation of the previous Earl. Tostig had his work cut out for him. For the Godwinsons were a southern power, and the north remained filled with prideful Britons who intimately remembered and embraced their rugged Viking roots. Tostig is described as inflexible and strong-willed, which is the exact same way that we would describe the inhabitants of the north. He also, like most younger siblings, wanted to prove that he could do his job at least as well as Harold could. The land he inherited, however, was in a state of near anarchy, with reports claiming that any party less than 30 strong should expect to be ambushed and looted. As a side note, the reports claim that all small parties should expect to be either killed or at the minimum sexually assaulted. This wasn't just brigands, but local lords who set up the Northern Highway robbery schemes. Tostig decided that his first move as lord would be to establish a tough on crime reputation. He massively increased the tax collection, specifically targeting churches in the area, in order to build up his police forces. To make matters worse, he fined individuals for any and all violations thus immediately earning the reputation of a foreign tyrant from the people whose hearts and minds he should have been trying to win over. His personal army of 200 House Coral warriors took over the roads and began to arrest those in violation of Tolstig's laws, which involved the abolishment of Canute-era blood feuds in favor of the introduction of a British-styled court system. Northern England has always been challenging to rule. If you need a literal reminder of this fact, you only have to travel to the border between England and Scotland to touch Hadrian's Wall. The still standing 73 mile long physical barrier originally served to keep the barbaric Caledonian warriors from the civilized Roman England. The British Museum has perhaps the greatest painting of all time, in John White's 16th century Caldonian warrior. The warrior is completely naked, which you won't notice unless you look closely at the man's waistline, which unfortunately makes the display of the painting unsuitable for my classroom. The unnamed warrior is entirely blue and covered with tattoos, including a serpentine dragon wrapped from each shoulder to wrist. A half-baboon, half-orc covers his midriff, an owl lives upon his chest, and two cat-like creatures cover his kneecaps. Further down, scales adorn his calves. Even better, this barbarian has the exact hair that one would expect to find on Ringo Starr in the early 70s, and a mustache that belonged on a few of the Fab Four. At first glance, the warrior appears to be from off-planet, but the hair and mustache are dead giveaways that this blue creature belongs somewhere in Great Britain. The warrior is armed with a wicked-looking sword that is nearly as wide as a club, a rounded shield, and the head of its last victim. The work is meant to be a commentary on what Caldonians looked like according to the Romans. White even defended his art by pulling from scholars. He tells an interviewer that it is worth noting that the paintings and tattoos on this warrior in particular resemble some of the more elaborate sculpted and gilded decorations on court armor of the period. The historian Herodorian mentions the iron torques. The sword chain is mentioned by Diodorus Seclus, and the narrow oval shield, torques, nakedness, head-hunting, and body-painted are all described. Herodian wrote, They paint their bodies with sundry colors with all kinds of animals represented in them. Tostig faced the successors of the Caledonians, the equally fierce and hard-to-control Scottish. In 1057, Malcolm III had overthrown Macbeth and taken control of the Scots. Unlike the prior ruler who was a puppet of the English throne, whom Shakespeare serialized as a puppet of witches, Malcolm regularly raided across Hadrian's Wall enslaving men and women while profiting richly off of an incredible amount of stolen goods and cattle. Failure to contain the Scottish King's raids was part of the reason that Tostig's predecessor had lost his ruling mandate. Rather than doubling down on his tough-on-crime policies, Tostig showed a deft touch, managing to make peace between the two peoples by ordering the return of territory that had been seized by prior rulers. It didn't take a shrewd politician to figure out that this was the only way to achieve lasting peace. More immediate among the concerns of Tostig was the fact that the people of Northumbria wouldn't ever support him if he couldn't prove that he was able to protect them from the savage Scots. Meanwhile, he couldn't physically battle the Scots without the support of his people. Thus, the makings of a peace deal were in place for all parties involved. Just as things were beginning to settle down, a series of assassinations of separatist leaders occurred and Tolstig, as the man in charge, was held directly responsible by the powers that be in London. Although Toastig is a possible explanation for the killings, others point the finger at either Edward storing the pot or Harold manipulating the affairs of his brother. McLynn explains that we do not know why two brothers who had collaborated so well hitherto suddenly fell out. Maybe Tostig's contempt for Harold's lifestyle, his envy of his brother's advantages, and latent sibling rivalry were already at boiling point when Edward whispered to him that he, Tostig, was his preferred successor. That's right, we now have a fifth individual who credibly claims that Edward at least hinted to them that they were the designated heir to the throne of England. A massive rebellion in October of 1065 saw Tostig deposed and the sons of the previous regime of the North were restored to power. Tostig's housecarls were executed by the new regime and his treasury was plundered. In the span of less than a decade, Tostig had gone from the top of the world to the trash heap. Although it was well within his power to do so, Harold Godwinson, Tostig's brother, didn't move a muscle to come to his little brother's aid. The lack of movement further suggests that a secret backroom agreement had been agreed to between the Crown and the usurpers. Tostig went so far as to publicly charge his brother with inciting the rebellion, to which Harold claimed that Tostig's heavy-handed policies were the only cause of his downfall. Tostig continued to stomp his feet, demanding that Harold use the king's forces to restore him as the rightful ruler. But Harold declared that now was not the time to begin what would surely amount to a civil war. It was at this point that the king finally stepped in between the feuding siblings. The feud had lingered publicly for so long that it furthered the credibility behind rumors that Edward was utilizing Tostig in order to minimize the role of his most powerful advisor. Godwinson was promptly ordered to mobilize England's military forces to restore order in the North, risking the civil war that Harold had proclaimed as the most likely outcome of such an action. Cleverly, Harold slow-played the order, sabotaging the mission by assigning all of England's top commanders to other lengthy tasks. Those that he couldn't find busy work for did actually assemble in order to show that he was complying with Edward's orders. Once together, however, they unanimously followed Harold's lead by declaring that it was in the nation's best interest that the army shouldn't move an inch until the full forces were able to be arrayed. Edward was so incensed at the actions that he suffered a number of minor strokes, hastening his decline. In an effort to secure peace in the north, the king was forced to put his name to parchment on an agreement to effectively exile Tostig. Faced with declining health, this act was the last time that Edward would ever leave his bedroom, and by November of 1065, it was checkmate in the game for who would be the next king. Harold Godwinson was fully positioned to rule. He was running the day-to-day operations for a king who was now fully incapacitated. He held the full loyalty of the nation's military might, he was respected by the commoners for his deft hand at avoiding conflict, and he remained by far the richest and most well-known landowner on the entire island. Obviously, parents want their children to love each other. My greatest hope upon finding out that I was going to be father to a set of twin boys was that they would grow up to become best friends for life. My greatest fear, however, is that they would suffer what psychologists refer to as twin estrangement, a rare and preventable phenomenon that at least one Ph.D. carrying behavior scientist claims that psychotherapy is completely ineffective in the event of a sibling breakdown. Never underestimate how strongly hatred for a sibling once stoked burns. In this instance, the little brother felt that he had a legitimate cause, but not the means to achieve it. In his search for allies, he first sailed to the court of his brother-in-law, Baldwin of Flanders. Here, Tostig received ships and funding. Next, he sought out William in Normandy, the man whom his brother feared most. William was already deep into planning his own invasion and coordinated with Tostig regarding coastal raids that would serve to test England's defenses. At William's orders, Tostig successfully raided Sandwich, Lincolnshire, and Norfolk before being run off by Harold's naval forces. He even reached out to Malcolm, the King of the Scots, before meeting with Sven Ethresen and finally Harold Hardrada in Norway. It was at the last stop that Toastig influenced the events of 1066 the most. William was always going to invade England, but Harold didn't have any concrete plans to recreate Canute's empire, just the daydream that it would be pretty cool if he could. Tostig painted King Harold Hardrada, a lovely picture of an England on the verge of a civil war. He touched up his story with plenty of details that from afar, perhaps as far away as Norway, one could gaze on the painting and see exactly what the storyteller wanted them to see. But upon close inspection, one realizes that the painting's details don't make any sense, proclaiming that if he could just manage to successfully land in the north, Tostig as the rightful ruler would be able to assemble a sizable force of loyalists to join Hardrada's forces. He pledged that he would be happy to serve beneath the great Viking warrior, despite clearly having his own dreams of sitting on the throne of England. Publicly, however, he sang all the right notes, proclaiming that all of the glory would be reserved for the Viking king. He made no mention of the fact that a Norman army was also contemplating a southern invasion, meaning that even if Hardrada were to be victorious, it would be unlikely that he would be able to hold the kingdom for long. After all, King Harold had already experienced combat with the highly effective Normans during his previous wars in Italy as a Byzantine mercenary. Unable to resist the glory that would inevitably come from matching Canute's accomplishments, Harold Hardrada raised half of his kingdom's able-bodied men and ordered ships to be immediately constructed for war. Tostig went ahead as the vanguard with 60 ships at his disposal to prepare the north for the Vikings' arrival. His return went wrong almost immediately. As Tostig's forces were routed upon arrival, He barely managed to escape with a mere 12 of his original 60 ships. Scotland took him in, but King Malcolm was unwilling to step one foot past Hadrian's Wall until the point that Hardrada had made landfall with his army. Unlike Hardrada, he had previously dealt with Tostig and knew not to trust everything that came out of his mouth. By the time of Tostig's return, Harold had already been named and crowned as King of England. He didn't have long to settle into the job. The newly minted monarch arranged his forces first to deal with the southern threat emanating from William's mustering of forces in Normandy. He had correctly surmised that Tostig's earlier sea incursions were mere probing attacks for the inevitable Norman invasion. It was here, at the beginning, that Harold Godwinson made his first mistake by calling forth both the general and select Freed, which was the equivalent of a mandatory feudal draft. If all of England's male peasants aged between 15 and 54 years of age came in response to the summons, as they were legally required to, Harold had an army that numbered somewhere near 240,000 of course, it's unlikely that this was the case, as there was very little resembling a census in England at this point in time. If you just assume that 5% of the population came to meet their obligation, Godwinson still would have had an army of 50,000 soldiers. Compare that to William's 14,000 men and Hardrada's 11,000, as well as the fact that Godwinson was a battle-tested commander and they were defending home territory, and one begins to wonder how England came to be conquered. The size of the force that he assembled was enough to again raise widespread objections within William's court. A bit of select poisonings, here and there, settled the crowd down. So what was the mistake? Harold's forces were under the feudal contract, which explicitly stated that peasants were only obligated to perform 40 days of military service. After that, they were free to leave. William's informants properly identified the forces assembled against them, and then the Duke of Normandy cleverly decided to wait on his side of the channel. Unlike Harold's English, Normandy's forces were all tied directly to him, rather than feudal law. He assembled them at dives on the 4th of August, before releasing one of Harold's spies so that the man could report back to the king that the launching of the long-planned invasion was imminent. Interestingly, the English would repeat this act in the other direction during World War II, releasing captured Nazi informants to misdirect Hitler's timing regarding the defense of the Atlantic Wall in France. William was better able to handle a delay than his English counterpart, for rather than claiming that military service was a legal necessity, William paid his men out of his own pocket, making sure that their morale remained high. They wouldn't leave the town of Dives until September 12th, The move was brilliantly calculated as the 40-day military requirement was lifted, causing Godwinson's men to disappear home. Plus, harvesting season was upon them, and the workers would be needed in the fields unless King Harold wanted to deal with a famine during his first winter in charge. Thus, Godwinson disbanded most of his army on September 8th four days prior to William launching his invasion. Crossing the English Channel wasn't easygoing for the former Vikings, and a number of ships were destroyed in the crossing. Godwinson tried to prevent that crossing by sending out his massive navy, but they were unable to engage the Normans, who island-hopped along a circuitous path, in order to hide their final landing spot. William's army landed for good on September 27th, meaning that it took them 19 days to sail across the same length of water that Matthew Webb swam in 22 hours, roughly 800 years later. The best option to stop a foe from successfully invading England is to prevent them from landing. Churchill successfully managed this as did all of the English kings that faced off against France in the Hundred Years' War, as well as the Napoleonic Wars. Godwinson was unable to prevent the crossing in part because while William was playing cat and mouse, the king received word that Tostig's northern landing was just a precursor to a massive Norwegian army. Although it had been completely uncoordinated, Harold Hardrada had left Norway sometime towards the end of August, just in time to obliterate Godwinson's plans to deal with William. One wonders how much Harold cursed his brother Tostig's name for leading death directly to his doorstep. Before leaving his shores in order to eclipse Canute's legacy, Hardrada paid a visit to St. Olaf's tomb in order to clip some of the saint's hair and nails for good luck. He publicly identified his regent. After all, failing to clearly identify an heir is the primary reason for this whole conflict. He brought his son, who was also named Olaf, with him as a commander. He stopped along the way to check in with spies which served to confirm Tostig's analysis that King Godwinson was quite unpopular in the north. The Vikings first landed in Scotland, which was their ally in the coming fight, and ravaged a number of English towns without facing any opposition. Keep in mind, these are Vikings after all. Even if you're a part of their alliance, you ought to expect that one or two of your towns would be looted as collateral damage. They landed at Cleveland, which was where Hardrada fell getting off of his ship, a forewarning of the doom that was set to befall him. Tostig met up with him as planned with a motley collection of mercenaries made up of discarded pirates as well as soldiers from French Flanders. It is believed that they landed within a few days of William's forces. Hardrada immediately marched half of those forces to York, looping around in order to approach from the less-protected southern side. His forces made quick work of it, marching 185 miles in just four days. He met his only resistance at full Ford Gate on September 20th, as the Earls of the North, the same men who had overthrown Tostig and caused him to search out Hardrada, finally stood their ground in an effort to fulfill their duty to protect the realm. The Vikings outnumbered them 6,000 to 5,000, but the English showed their mettle by charging the weaker right flank. Unfortunately, Hardrada, a man who had seen more combat experience than anyone else in the field, rolled his enemy's lines and destroyed the forces assembled against him. York surrendered after a promise from Tostig that it would be spared of all looting. To ensure that the oath was more than just words, the city exchanged hostages, and Hardrada's men moved to camp seven miles east at Stamford Bridge so that there wouldn't be any misunderstandings with the citizens of York. The fall of York put King Godwinson in between the proverbial rock and a hard place. The failure of his stopgap northern forces left the entire nation exposed to invasion from the north. Although he viewed the larger threat to be coming from Normandy, he made a split-second decision to proceed north via intense forced marches in order to catch the Viking forces by surprise. He left a small contingent at key chokeholds in the south in the hope that he could bottle up William until such a time that he would be able to return and deal with him properly. While his motives are unclear, it is known that he began his northern sojourn before Hardrada had taken York. The stress of these days and their forced marches left Harold, the soldier, ill for much of the month. The histories of the time continually reference what is described as constant pain in his leg, and that he often fell into lucid trances, which he proclaimed promised him the last laugh. As he intended, he arrived in the north suddenly on the 24th, which happens to have been the same day that York surrendered and just four days after the Vikings had fought a major battle at Fulham Great. How unexpected was his appearance? Sudden enough that the Vikings had encamped at Stamford Bridge without their shields, helmets, or armor. Each bit of their protective equipment was left secured on their longboats. Godwinson stopped first in York to gather intelligence and assess his options. The most popular course of action would have been to rest his army, build a rampart, and then hold York against a siege. But Brits in this era were known to be horrifically bad at withstanding sieges, and the city was devoid of extra reserves of food and water, and thus a defensive course of action was immediately thrown out. He also thought about attacking the fleet burning the ships and stranding the Vikings so that he could then proceed to gradually wear them down through attrition. But he lacked ships, which were still in the south, central to a strategy against William. He also wisely decided to not put the Vikings back against the wall by eliminating all hope for retreat. The third option was the one that he took, opting to launch a surprise attack at Samford Bridge. His army of housecarls once again suited up and marched the seven miles along ancient Roman roads. The Vikings were quite comfortable in these domains that Tostig had promised would be sympathetic to Hardrada's cause and didn't have any warning regarding their opposition until the soldiers' heads crested the brow of a slope a mile and a half away. It is hard to imagine a force that was more disarrayed than the armorless Vikings, who at that particular moment were deep into the process of corralling local cows. Tostig immediately recognized his brother's banners and the threat that he posed, but Hardrada refused to give in to the man's desperate pleas to retreat, forming up a traditional Viking shield wall with the minimal amount of shields that his men had retained. At some point during the confusion, the Viking lord was thrown from his horse, but laughed it off, lying to his men that it was a sign of good luck in this country. Honorably, Godwinson gave them a chance to give up. After all, he needed his men alive to fight William. He came face to face with Hardrada, pretending to be his own messenger. Why no one can figure, considering that Tostig, his brother, was one of those chosen to parley with him. Godwinson, talking in the third person, promised Tostig that the king would grant him one-third of England. Again, there's a clear lack of intelligence in these events, as it seems that Godwinson believed Tostig to be the major player leading the forces arrayed against him. The king's brother asked what Hardrada would get for the trouble of raising an army and crossing the North Sea. Godwinson didn't mince his words telling Tostig that the Viking king would get seven feet of English dirt piled atop him, for he was, quote, taller than most men. After the king left without a peace agreement, Hardrada, who spoke very little English, finally found out that he had been conversing with the king of England, and openly wondered why they hadn't chopped him in half right then and there. Tolstig, of course, remarked on honor and how fratricide is somewhat frowned upon in England, and most of the non-Viking world. There isn't much remaining of the original Stamford Bridge or the surrounding area. In fact, one has to go out of their way in order to find the stone monument that resides across from a fish-and-chips shop. The 8x10 plaque that sits atop the old stone memorializes the entirety of the battle in one mere sentence. In fact, the only certainty that we absolutely know of comes from the name of the battle, telling us that there was a bridge involved. Historians remain perplexed as to exactly which bridge was the infamous Stamford Bridge but we can imagine the battle using the recollections of those that were there. The name Stanford Bridge is used by both Viking and British sources that chronicled the battle. Thus, it is assumed that the location was a well-known waypoint back in the day. While it's possible that Tostig identified the location for them, The fact that the Viking sagas name it in their history suggests that it may have been a common rendezvous for exchanging prisoners. Despite historical excavations, limited stonework has been found that would identify the location once and for all, suggesting that there was no great Roman bridge that served as the epicenter of the conflict. Rather, it is believed that the bridge served as a crossing for a ford or shallow river that was two feet deep and 100 feet wide, something that existed purely to make sure one didn't have to get their socks wet when getting from one side to another. As one might imagine, it is quite difficult to reconstruct a battlefield that we can't pinpoint. McLynn tells us that the battle started on the York side of the river, with the Vikings manning the approach to the bridge. Once they were pushed back and onto the bridge, there emerges a story in the Viking sagas regarding one giant unnamed Norwegian warrior who supposedly single-handedly slain 40 of Godwinson's men with a fierce two-handed battle axe. Although the longbow was known in England at this point in history, the Britons preferred hand-to-hand combat owing to their warrior ethos that had been developed during Canute's age. While it is unlikely that one warrior manned the bridge alone, the English histories tend to be just as fanciful in their depictions of the battle, including one story where a few men sneak onto a boat, sail under the bridge, and thrust a long pike up through the wooden planking to finally kill the unbeatable giant. Sometime in the afternoon, Godwinson's men took control of the bridge and were rewarded with the opportunity to confront Hardrada's main force, which had lined up in a bowed formation to ensure that they were not easily flanked. Despite being massively outnumbered and outgunned, so to speak, The Norwegians had remained watching their compatriots hold to the bridge for the entire morning. Only a small group had run off hoping to secure immediate reinforcements from the ships. When the shield wall was breached, Harald Hardrada attempted to rally his forces by personally leading a berserker charge, for which his faith led him to believe that he would finally earn eternal life within Valhalla. His reward in this life was significantly less exciting, namely an arrow to his windpipe. Mortally wounded, he lingered long enough to compose two poems that were recorded in the sagas, proof that the would-be next Canute was more than just an elite warrior. The first poem read like this. We march forward in battle, Array without our corslets to meet the dark blades Helmets shine, but I have not mine, for now our armor lies down on the ships After thinking about his work for a moment, presumably with an arrow still protruding out of a portion of his throat He sang out his second effort We do not creep in battle under the shelter of shields before the crash of weapons. This is what the loyal goddess of the hawk's hand commanded us. The bearer of the necklace told me long ago to hold the prop of the helmet high in the din of weapons when the Valkyrie's ice met the skulls of men. Harold Hardrada's death is used by historians to mark the official end of the Viking era. Godwinson kindly offered terms to the remaining men, but Tostig rallied the Norsemen behind their slain lord's flag. Keep in mind the Vikings feared dying of old age significantly more than a gloriously painful death on the battlefield. The Britons, on the other hand, were much more interested in ending the battle quickly, as they knew that this was merely the preseason exhibition in preparation for the true battle with William and the Normans. Soon, Tostig and his remaining warriors were slain. Tragically, the Viking reinforcements arrived in full armor from the ships just after their countrymen sang their last songs. McGlynn estimates that these fresh troops had rushed in a forced march of three hours in order to get there as quickly as they did. This time it was the Vikings that crashed into Godwinson's line, and the battleground soon devolved back into violent hand-to-hand combat. The Viking charge became known as Ori's Storm, and turned out to be the last offensive action of the battle. If the Vikings are right, the men of Ori's charge were soon reunited with their king in eternity. Desperate to begin assessing his losses so he could turn his attention south to confront William, Godwinson again offered peace terms to the remaining warriors, and this time the Vikings accepted their fate. In exchange for a pledge to never again invade England, 24 of the original 300 ships were allowed to return home. Harold Hardrada had stumbled. Rather than his crowning achievement, his failure at the Battle of Stamford Bridge ensured that he would never surpass the legacy of Canute the Great. The decision of what to do next was the most significant decision of Harold Godwinson's life. MacLynn points out that the Battle of Stamford Bridge confirmed once and for all that he was an elite general, something that is oftentimes ignored by supporters of William of Normandy. Students today look at the end result of 1066 as a foregone conclusion, but the Battle of Hastings was far closer than it should have been. Thus, we can look back at King Harold's choice with the knowledge that his choice wasn't necessarily incorrect. Indeed, it may have put him in the best possible position to succeed. He allowed his forces to rest for two days in York. While his focus immediately shifted to the next battle, his men were merely happy to have survived. Expecting to partake in the traditional spoils of war, The soldiers grew despondent after Godwinson forbade them from looting the battlefield and put off all decisions regarding the redistribution of all of the resources seized from the departing Norwegians. Although unpopular, this choice was an obvious one for the king to make, as searching the battlefield for hidden treasures would inevitably slow down the army's southern disembarkment. The men were understandably furious and many of them disappeared into the night. Harold, still grieving the death of his brother, made the decision to rush to the south in hopes that his forces had managed to keep William holed up where he had landed. He put out a call for fresh volunteers, ordered the northern lords to come with haste with any that showed up, and then left with just his elite housecarls. They managed to reach London in eight days. The Roman roads were quite as good as the ones that we have today, but Google Maps has someone walking for 65 hours in order to cover the 200 miles between the cities. That means that they would have had to have averaged eight hours of marching per day. The feat is even more remarkable when one considers that they had just completed a similar forced march earlier in the week before then exerting themselves in vicious hand-to-hand combat. Three days after the Britons' victory at Stanford Bridge, William's forces made landfall at 10 a.m. on September 28th. His forces landed upon an undefended beach, as Harold had pulled out his troops from Hastings in order to garrison Romney and Dover. This time, it was William who fell disembarking from the ships, but he quickly soothed the superstitious among his forces by grabbing the sand beneath him, proclaiming that he had deliberately seized his rightful kingdom in both hands. Once unloading was complete, William sent men to secure the surrender of the town of Hastings and, more importantly, its sizable food reserves. The Normans immediately got to work fortifying the area, proving that they had no intentions of ever leaving England. Within days, a trench was dug, walls were built to protect their horses, and a wooden castle emerged on top of a natural mound, a prelude to William's favored Mott and Bailey design. McLean believes that William first heard about the results of Stanford Bridge sometime on September 29th. While Harold gets slammed for rushing an exhausted army to a second front, William gave him no choice. The Duke instinctively knew that fighting a tired Harold was in his best interest and launched a number of feints into Sussex, the Godwins' ancestral home all done in order to draw him into an early brawl. The feint succeeded in part because Harold knew from his time as William's captive that the duke would burn down everything around him if it furthered his plans. He took his role as a historical arsonist quite literally. Thus the king felt that he had no choice but to do his sworn duty of protecting his people but having already dispatched Tostig and the Norwegians, Godwinson didn't know that he was still fighting on multiple fronts. William Spies had launched a propaganda campaign painting the king as a fratricidial brother who had displayed joy in personally beheading Tostig. The great author Mark Twain understood the challenge in confronting propaganda when he wrote that a lie will fly around the whole world while the truth is getting its boots on. William let his men do their work while waiting in Hastings behind the impressive inner rampart that his men had just finished building. With rumors swirling, Harold's call to action was dismissed by many who had already served their obligatory 40 days. Meanwhile, William had positioned himself in an excellent defensive position, while enjoying continuous resupply from the sea. He was going nowhere and would have to be shoved out of England. Upon arriving in London, Harold sought the recommendations of his advisers and God. One of the former suggested that it should be him rather than the king who led the troops into battle. Had Harold listened to this advice, there likely would have been a third major battle outside of London for the future of England. Instead of following this reasonable suggestion, Godwinson, the general, bet it all on a single roll of the dice. McLinn fleshes out the man's decision-making, teaching that Harold was probably influenced by four main points. First, he could not be sure that William was not receiving reinforcements from the continent, and thus growing stronger every day. Secondly, as Lord and King, he felt morally bound to rescue his lands from the wrath of God treatment to which the Normans were subjecting them to. Thirdly, he felt overconfident after Stamford Bridge and may have dreamed of a second victory which would place him in the annals of the great conquerors of all time, alongside Alexander the Great, Hannibal, and Julius Caesar. Fourthly, his strategy depended on bottling up William in the Hastings hinterland, which was in those days a peninsula with a narrow isthmus as the only means of access. It was October. Very soon forage for the Norman war horses would dry up, and if confined on the peninsula, William would have no choice but to surrender. Still, the nameless advisor argued that most of those objectives could be achieved by embracing Fabian's scorched-earth tactics, designed to deprive William of all available resources. If they moved the fleet to cut off his resupply, he would be besieged with no hope of advancing. Ego got in the way of strategy, however, as Harold refused to let any man face danger while he avoided it nor to let any of his citizens suffer more than could be avoided. Still, had he waited just a few weeks, he could have doubled the size of his forces. The Southern Fird was summoned, and began another grueling forced march, this time covering 58 miles in three days in order to reach the vicinity of William's encampment on October 13th. Unlike at Stamford Bridge, His army had been detected early on by the Norman scouts. Harold's men rolled in about 2 a.m., and William's soldiers were all awake, at attention, and ready to fight. Any plans for a daring midnight raid were immediately scrapped by the Britons. Harold is believed to have had 7,000 men at his disposal, but at least half of those that answered his call were untrained peasants. William had at least 7,000 men with a few historians estimating that his forces numbered as many as 12,000 strong, the vast majority of whom were well-trained. Failing to achieve the element of surprise, Harold intended to wait as reinforcements from the north slowly trickled in. He arrayed his forces in order to corner the Normans and settled in for what he expected would be a long siege and political negotiation. The conqueror had different ideas. He decided to break out of his makeshift keep on the Isthmus at first light. Harold, however, was the best general that William had ever encountered and wasn't shocked when his opponent did something against the grain. As the Normans mustered, Harold rapidly moved in order to secure Battle Hill, a forward position that would grant his men the high ground. Desperate to seize the high ground himself, William pushed forward the lightest and therefore quickest of his ground forces. This would be the first action for William's archers, men who led the fight rather than hid behind the men-at-arms. Although many history books will claim that the Norman longbow is the reason for his victory, the Britons had access to the same technology. They just preferred not to use it. William was merely an early adopter who recognized the value of killing one's opponents from a position where they couldn't return the favor. The Duke's men were also equipped with the dreaded crossbow, a weapon so destructive that the Pope would outlaw its use 72 years later. Harold's English won the race to the top of the battle hill, but in the process of securing their advantage, a large number of William's crossbows connected with shield-breaking blasts, shattering their enemy's morale. The battlefront that emerged was a half-mile wide, and Harold chose to place his standards at the crest of the hill. William's forces advanced wide, with the Duke selecting a mace for the occasion as he towered over his troops atop his Spanish war horse. His forces advanced towards the base of the hill and proceeded to narrow their ranks in order to deal with the Britons' turtle shell formation atop it. Both sides were aware of the fact that the defenders could expect to receive reinforcements each and every day. Thus, William was forced to take the hill and finish the clash with haste. The conqueror spoke to his men, reminding them that God was supportive of their cause. Just in case God himself had forgotten, he also publicly proclaimed that he would one day build a church on the site of the battle if he were granted victory. As the front formed, champions were selected to draw first blood, with a Norman warrior named Talifur viciously killing his adversary before then charging alone at the Britons' shield wall. The second battle for England had finally begun. The two generals put strength against strength as William first tested the defenders with his infantry and archers, wearing them down for the eventual charge of his well-rested war horses. The Normans marched up Battle Hill in practiced formation, singing the song of Roland in honor of the fallen Talifer. A half hour later, the Britons turned back the assault with their house valiantly holding their ground. The Housecarls were the elite soldiers of England, and they were easily worth two of William's infantry. They fought side by side with trained precision, wielding giant two-handed Danish war axes which could split a horse in half with one blow. But no one knew what they would be able to do against creatures which had been bred through the monasteries to be three times the size of the Britons' horses. The shield wall held and even managed to push the Norman war machine back. Harold seized on the moment, ordering an advance designed to surround his enemy. Like the Greek phalanx, a well-trained Saxon shield wall manned by horse-splitting axemen was impossible to stand against. The Normans were being forcibly shoved down the hill. William was thrown from his horse and had to remove his helmet to reassure his forces that he, and therefore his cause, still remained alive. Battles can be decided upon moments such as these, moments where a few men lose heart and break, causing widespread fear that the others had missed a signal and were about to be swarmed and cut down where they stood. McLinn reminds us that in battle, minutes, even seconds, count. Had the advance continued, it is conceivable that Harold Godwinson would have won the Battle of Hastings. But the advance stopped, likely because of the death of Harold's little brother, Leofwine. The death of the leader, likely via a stray arrow, temporarily stayed the pulse of the onslaught. At two o'clock, the two sides paused to rest. Although we aren't yet at the height of the Middle Ages, armor had advanced significantly faster than the weaponry. Soon Europe would enter into an era where more knights were dying of lightning strikes than sword blows. Swinging a sword allows exhaustion to set in quickly as the soldier's adrenaline wanes. The physical toll of the slaughter was too much for either side to sustain. At the moment of the pause, neither side could have felt too confident nor too frightened. The initial coming together was a stalemate. The coming nightfall would be the key. If Harold could last until reinforcements came, he would remain king. If William could dislodge them from the hill, he would be able to seize every capable leader that the country had to offer in one fell swoop. It was at this moment that William bluffed and Harold pushed his chips all in. Using his knowledge of past actions, the Duke ordered a feigned retreat, a move that he had initiated in at least three prior battles. Rather than a full retreat, Mclinn believes that individual groupings pulled off the maneuver, drawing the defenders out of their favored positions within the shield wall before then turning on them, isolating them, and slaughtering them. The right flank faltered, and now Harold atop the hill, was forced to defend from two points of attack. By 4.30 p.m., the freed began to desert in significant numbers. To a peasant, it didn't matter too much if your king spoke English or French. Both would order them to work all day long. As gaps opened up across the shield wall, Norman archers came to the forefront and took a high-angle plunging trajectory. The Bayeux Tapestry shows Harold dying twice, the first of which involved him receiving an arrow in the eye, likely during this maneuver. Most historians believe that this is mistakenly labeled, and rather than Harold, depicts the death of his brother. As the shield wall broke, William charged in with his third horse of the day and was nearly killed in single combat after promptly having his third horse of the day cut out beneath him. Pockets of defenders fought back to back against overwhelming numbers while others began to look after themselves via looting of the dead. Harold Godwinson was recognized by his standards and rather than fighting him one-on-one as he had boasted that he would do, William sent in a hand-picked four-man hit squad to finish off the king. This is the second description included within the bayou tapestry. In this version of events, one knight ran King Godwinson through the chest with a lance, while a second cut off his head. Still a third disemboweled him, and the fourth, not wanting to be left out, cut off his leg or perhaps what was between his legs. The House Carles continued to fight to the last man, all dying where they stood. The war was boiled down to a single day's battle, which was whittled down into a rout atop a hill, and then a slaughter. As the Duke's soldiers were mopping up, Harold's reinforcements began arriving just in time to surrender to the Norman commander atop Battle Hill. MacLynn tells us that William camped for the night among the carnage of the fallen, deliberately pitching his tent amid the heaps of slaughtered. It was long after dusk before he took off his armor, received the plaudits of his troops, and at last sat down to eat and drink. At dawn, the Normans began burying their dead, and meanwhile Saxon women came to the camp asking for the bodies of their husbands, sons, and brothers. William allowed them to be removed for burial, then ordered Harold's dismembered corpse assembled for burial. Asserting his dominance, William decided that his predecessor lay to rest under a mound of stones at the foot of the sea cliff, with the inscription reading, By the Duke's command, Harold, you rest here, to guard the sea and shore. By the end of November, Duke William of Normandy was within sight of London, and after a minor engagement settled in to besiege the capital city. Without their king, however, the Britons were unable to muster a true defense, and within days handed over the crown to the Norman warlord. The events of 1066 began with the death of Edward the Confessor on January 5, 1066, They ended on Christmas Day, with William becoming England's first king of his name. His Norman citizens celebrated the occasion with widespread looting throughout the English capital. But what can you expect? They were Vikings, after all. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.